0: All right, so today we begin the final chapter of the Gospel of John. In chapter 21, we find another encounter that Matthew, Mark, and Luke did not record in their Gospels. Chapter 21 is a personal encounter that Peter and John had with Jesus. So this is now the third time that Jesus has appeared to his disciples. But this time, it's to a small number of disciples who were fishing off the shores of Galilee. Let's begin, jump straight into verse 1 so we can kind of set the stage for everything. John says that Jesus manifested himself again to disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and then he manifested himself in this way. So chapter 21 takes place on the shores of the Sea of Tiberias or the Sea of Galilee. This should send signals to you because we have gone through now all of the chapters of the Gospel of John, And the last time, really, that the disciples and Jesus were off the shores on the banks of the Sea of Galilee was in John chapter 6. This is where Jesus fed over 5,000 people, with five loaves and two fish. Remember that? This is where Jesus walked on water. This is where Peter, for a brief moment in history, walked on water towards Jesus himself. This is also where years prior to John 6... That Jesus called Peter and his brother Andrew and James and John, who were kind of co-labor fishermen together, to drop their nets and follow him. This is all the same setting. This is where Peter told Jesus that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. All right, so that's the backdrop of all this. Let's look at verses 2 and 3. So John says that Peter and Thomas, called Didymus, and Nathanael of Canaan and Galilee... And the sons of Zebedee, such James and John, and then two other unnamed disciples were together. And Peter says to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we'll also come with you. And they went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. How many fishermen out there struggle often because you go out fishing and you catch nothing? I think my father-in-law went fishing this week, right? And, And you didn't catch anything, right? (laughs) <laughs> you hear that? He's like, right, they, thanks for calling me out. But that, but the thing is, you, y'all know what this feels like, but these are professional fishermen. We have to figure out why these professional fishermen could fish no fish. There we go. You have to remember, Peter's from a fishing family. Him and his brother, Andrew, fish for his father, John. So was James and John. They were in this Fisherman company, the sons of Zebedee. Both sets of brothers were fishermen before Jesus. Now, when they're in Jerusalem, this is in chapter 20, which we were reading in the weeks prior to today, Jesus told the disciples to go back up to Galilee and just to wait. Wait for him to show up. And while waiting, Peter decides to go fishing, which once again reveals how many of you have a hard time waiting and doing nothing for something. Okay, yeah, you yeah. I'm not alone. Okay, it's good. We have to be doing something with our hands, right? Peter's just like us. He's not superhuman, and he's not subhuman. So Peter decides to go fishing, and there's six other disciples that join him. So they fish the whole night, and they catch nothing. Three of these seven disciples are professional fishermen who have fished on these shores their whole lives, and they catch nothing. But I want you for a moment, because we're trying to put ourselves, God willing, in the position of Peter this morning and next Sunday. What do you think Peter and James and John were thinking about as they fished all night and caught nothing? Remember, years before, Peter and his brother Andrew and James and John were fishing on these very same waters. And Jesus came to them and said, drop your nets, leave your families, follow me. He promised to make them fishers of men, right? They listened to Jesus teach many times on these waters. They watched Jesus feed the masses with these waters as the backdrop. Once again, for a brief moment, Peter himself walked on these very same waters. And they've been through a lot, especially in the previous days and weeks. What was that? we'll let our deacons take care of that. Yep, and we'll keep going. If there's anything in terms of safety, we'll let anyone know. But we do live, we do have church on a very busy road. And that brings us to our proposition this morning. Let's take a look at it. Our proposition today is that God provides for the daily needs of his people. That's the promise. But this lets us know a little bit as to why he does that. It's so that they and we can truly enjoy his son. So we're going to see this truth today and this promise today about God. God provides for the daily needs of his people. God is going to provide fish, and God is going to provide bread to meet the disciples' physical needs. And God does this as a sign. You have you remember, we've been talking about signs in the previous weeks in the Gospel of John, that this is done as a sign to express that Jesus desires to meet Peter's deepest need. John 21 isn't about fish and bread. It's not about fishing. It's not about fires. It's about something even deeper that Peter needs from Jesus. So for a moment, can you imagine what it was like for Peter to go home and start fishing off of these shores again after years of following Jesus? Can you imagine what it was like for Peter to go home after the events of Passover, He went in like hours from lopping off the ear of someone who wanted to arrest Jesus to maybe hours later denying in front of people that even knew Jesus. His Jesus was crucified, buried, resurrected. So God brings Peter back to these familiar waters. But I bet you Peter did not feel familiar to himself because he was a changed man. Jesus is present and will provide for Peter to remind him that he is a changed man. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught his disciples to pray in a certain way. Let's take a look at it in Matthew 6, 11. Jesus instructed Christians to pray this particular component in their prayers. Give us this day our daily bread, right? The Christian prays, and the Christian's prayer expresses a desire for God to give us the ability to trust in him to provide for daily needs. Therefore, it means that it is not selfish for you to pray for daily bread. How many of you have often struggled to pray anything for yourself because you feel selfish about it? But Jesus does not condemn you for doing that. In fact, he instructs you, pray, give me today my daily bread. Whatever my daily needs are, you give it to me. It is authentic and real and actually humble to pray this, not selfish, not prideful. God the Father wants you to ask him to meet your daily needs. God's providence proves his presence and his tender care for our lives. But too often, we don't view our daily needs this way. We don't view our daily needs as an opportunity for our Father to provide for us. We view our daily needs as a way that we can satisfy ourselves. We can take responsibility for ourselves. Just like I mentioned last week, if you are a middle-class American, you really struggle with the gospel because you think you got to do it yourself. you got to do all the work, and you look down on the higher class, and you look down on the lower class. Because the higher class always has family to take care of them, and their riches, and the lower class has the government. But you're middle class, and you're better than that. And the gospel strikes a chord against that. I feel like a little bit maybe Peter does too. Peter's a hardworking man too. That's why he moves to action all the time. And I think that's also why in God's providence, God allowed Peter to catch nothing. Work hard all night and catch nothing. I mean, he is stripped down to basically wearing nothing. He's working so hard trying to fish waters. We are going to see that Jesus provides for their daily needs to point to Jesus' desire to meet their deepest needs. And what I'm trying to present to you today, that this is still the way that Jesus works. Jesus wants the opportunity to provide for your daily needs, not because that's the end itself. Because remember, signs aren't the end, they just point. You don't go to the arch and say, okay, drive-thru burger, you're coming down. It points to where you should go. God meaning your daily needs isn't the end itself. It's a point to something deeper in your soul, that there's something deeper and more substantial that God wants to do in your soul than just meet your daily needs. And we're going to see how the disciples reacted to all that Jesus did today, especially Peter. And then at the end, we're going to pivot, and we're going to check our own motives for why we are around Jesus today and why we are around his people today. And that's what this morning's about. Let's get to our first point. We're going to see that Jesus provides for the daily needs of his disciples for this reason, to put them in a position to enjoy him again. Now, this is the encouraging thing, therefore. If God needed to move this way and the people who actually physically saw Jesus and walked with him, right, supped with him, watched him do all these amazing things, and they needed to be put in a position to enjoy him again, how much more should we, right? So don't be too hard on yourself that you feel like this morning you're not in a position where you're enjoying God. Because they saw Jesus do some pretty incredible things, and they weren't in a position of enjoyment with him. And Jesus had to jar them back into it. We are going to see Jesus show up after disciples worked hard all night. Jesus is present when they are tired. Jesus is present when they are empty. And Jesus is present specifically this morning to put Peter in a position to enjoy him again. And we're not going to see this. It's going to be a crescendoing. It's going to get to a climax next Sunday to see how this resolves for Peter. So you have to come back to see what happens. Right now, there is an obstacle between Peter and Jesus. Peter and what brings his soul true satisfaction and true joy. Let's get to verse 4. John tells us that the day was breaking. Jesus stood on the beach, and the disciples didn't know it was Jesus. So it's morning time. They have caught nothing. Jesus is on the seashore, and they don't actually know it's Jesus on the seashore. They're in a boat offshore a little bit. John tells a little bit later, it's about 100 yards away, so that's a pretty good excuse. How good is your vision? 300 feet, right? But in verse 5, we see Jesus begin to move towards them. Let's take a look. Jesus speaks to them, and he says, children, you do not have any fish, do you? And they answer him, no. So Jesus is essentially asking the disciples, have you caught no fish? The question is this, does Jesus not know? I mean, he is God. Does he not know whether his disciples caught fish or not throughout the whole night? Of course he knows whether they caught fish or not. Jesus doesn't ask questions like you do, and the motives for why you ask questions. We ask questions because we want information. We need to know something. Jesus doesn't ask questions because he needs to know something. Jesus asks questions. Here's just one reason why, and I think this is the reason right now. Jesus asks questions to get his people thinking and speaking and moving. So disciples say no. They caught no fish. They were up all night. They caught nothing. And then we see Jesus move again. And he moves in a familiar fashion to Peter and James and John. Let's take a look at verse 6. Jesus tells them, Cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you'll find a catch. So they cast And then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. So Jesus tells them to do something so simple, probably so simple, they already tried it, right? These are professional fishermen. If they were throwing their nets on one side of their boat and it wasn't working, you think after all the hours of fishing, they would have thought, let's do the other side, right? So you can imagine obstacle upon obstacle to listening to Jesus, right? And you probably think in your head. I've already done this. Why should I do it again? This person clearly is not a fisherman. We don't even know who this person is. Obstacle after obstacle after obstacle. But Jesus says, if you do this, you'll catch fish. Jesus is doing this for the ultimate reason of jogging their memories. I was just talking with a couple maybe this weekend. We're talking about how Americans are so quick to forget. We'll think that something is really, really good in America right now, presently. Gas prices are going down, for example. That we forget what has happened in the days and the weeks and the months prior to that. It's not an American problem. It's a human problem. And the disciples struggle with that, too, because they're as human as Americans today. Jesus is trying to jog their memories. Because this is exactly what happened when Jesus called Peter and his brother Andrew and James and John to follow him. We read of it in Luke chapter 5. In Luke 5, Luke tells us that these four brother fishermen were out all night again, and they caught nothing. And Jesus shows up, and he tells Peter to cast the net again. And Peter tells Jesus, he says something like, we've been at this all night. We have been fishing and fishing. We have caught nothing. But then he concedes. He's like, okay, Jesus, you told me to do it. I'm going to do it. That's Luke 5. And when Peter did this, when he cast his nets down again, there were so many fish that his nets were beginning to tear. And his boat was sinking. All right? Now we take a look in Luke 5, verses 8 through 11, because I want you to see how Peter responds to this. Loads of fish after hours of nothing, so much fish, nets breaking, boat sinking, And he looks at Jesus, and this is his response. Simon Peter fell down at Jesus' feet, and here's what he says. Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. That's really weird, right? Like, shouldn't he be excited? No, he sees a sin. We'll get to that. Amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Don't fear. From now on, you'll be catching men. You'll be fishing men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed Jesus. So when Peter saw the great number of fish, when Peter saw his nets breaking, when Peter saw his boat sinking, when Peter saw that he was wrong and Jesus was right he began to experience the weight of his nature, the weight of his sinfulness. And he falls down at Jesus' feet. He told Jesus he's a sinful man, and this is an odd response. I think fishermen would be happy that their nets were beginning to break and their boat was sinking because of all the fish, right? But not Peter. He connects it to his nature and his own sin. And what we learn from this is that feeling the weight of your own sinfulness And there's many of you, I think we struggle with taking ourselves out of a position to feel the weight of our own nature, to feel the weight of our own sinfulness. We'll medicate it, we'll distract it. But feeling the weight of your own sinfulness is the very first step of finding real joy and real satisfaction for your soul. You cannot do it without first acknowledging, just like Peter, I'm a sinful man. Jesus moves towards Peter. Think about it. Despite Peter just telling Jesus, I'm a sinful man, Jesus still wants to be around him, right? And this is where we have to be careful because typically in your human-to-human relationships, you acknowledge your weaknesses, and the person detaches from you, right? How many of you have had a loved one that you thought was a loved one? You bear their soul to them. They hear it, and they drop you. You been there? I got him in spades. Got him in spades, right? Jesus is not like this. He knows your sinfulness. He sees that you're fallen and broken, and he calls you anyway, right? That's why we sing songs like Indescribable, you see the depths of my heart, and what? And you still love me the same. That's Jesus, unlike any other human being, because he's not just human. 100% God, and he's 100% man. Jesus moved towards Peter, here in chapter 21, once again on the waters of Galilee, to begin to address Peter's deepest need. You see, Peter is in sin again. And despite this, he shows up on the the shores, and he provides fish, again, to jog Peter's memory that the same Jesus in Luke 5 is still the same Jesus in John 21. Jesus moves towards his people, even though he knows their sin. In fact, he takes on the cross for their sin. Remember, Peter fell short. He royally Messed up during Passover. And Peter, is his deepest need is that of reconciliation. And we see Jesus move first, as God always does in this thing called salvation. We see Jesus move first towards reconciliation. You see, Peter's real need today in John 21 isn't for fish. It's for reconciliation. Jesus speaks the same way in John 21 as he did in Luke 5. To jog Peter's memory that Jesus is after him yet again. And Peter responds the same way. He casts the net on the right side of the boat, and there is so much fish that they couldn't haul it in with one net. But the difference is the nets don't break, and the boat is not in jeopardy of sinking. Let's take a look at verse 7. When this occurs, John goes to Peter, and I, I imagine a whisper. I mean, that's how I read it this morning. I imagine whispering to Peter, it's the Lord. And then we see Peter's response. When Peter heard that it was the Lord, this is strange. We're going to talk about it. He puts on his outer garments, and then John tells us that he was stripped down for work. And then he threw himself into the sea. Though it was Peter who wanted to go fishing, it was John who first recognizes the man on the seashore as Jesus. And John looks into Peter, and he whispers to him, it is the Lord. And Peter moves the action, right? Typical guy, right? We act before we think. I love John's language here and his humor because John's like, yeah, Peter like, puts his outer garment on, swims to land, and what do we do? We're just right off the shore. We just take the boat in. But it's this moment that Peter moves to action that I want you to focus on for a moment. Today's about motivation. All right, the seat, the heart, why you do what you do. Why do you think Peter moves to action here? Why does Peter move towards Jesus? And the greater question is this, why do you move to action? For some reason, out of the many churches that are in this five-mile radius, you are here right now. I'm thankful, but this morning, I want you to consider why. What's the heart of it all? What's the heart of the matter? Why do you move to action? Why are you around Jesus? Why are you around his people? So John tells us, That before Peter jumps into the water, that he was stripped down. The NASB translation tries to, like a little euphemism right here, but the Greek literally means that Peter was stripped down naked. It does? What translation is that? I'm just curious. Okay, so the older languages, the older translations would be more authentic about that because there's not the cultural humor that's associated with nakedness as it is in American culture. And John tells us that before Peter jumps into the water to swim towards Jesus, he puts his outer garments on. We do not get this because of where we are culturally in time period, 21st century American South. But you can still get images of what life is like in the Middle East and how people dress. Outer garments are heavy and thick and meant to block wind and sand. When a person goes for a swim, do they traditionally put things on or take things off? They take things off. It is very curious, and that's why John includes this detail here. What is going on here? And this is why remembering Luke 5 is so important. Because Jesus' true purpose here is to jog Peter's memory. That the Jesus of John 21 is the same Jesus that he was first introduced to in Luke 5. Last time Jesus worked in this way, Jesus put Peter in a position to feel the weight of his sin. Right now in John 21, Peter has unresolved business with Jesus. He has unresolved sin in his life. Peter has denied his relationship to Jesus publicly three times. Peter once confessed, Jesus, you are the Christ, you are the Son of the living God but he was in good company when he did that, right? When he was in public, among people who didn't share the same values as him, he shrinked back. He's no different than you, and he's no different than me. But this, this means there's something unresolved between Peter and Jesus. There is a huge obstacle between Peter and Jesus that is larger than the distance between the boats and the shores of Galilee. And once again, our God knows this And he makes the first step, which provides for us, when we reconcile as Christians, we must always be the bigger ones to make the first step. So we ask, why does Peter cover up? And here's the answer. Because Peter too, just like you, just like me, Peter is a son of Adam and Eve. That's why he covers up. It is our nature to cover up our sin in the presence of God. Do you remember what Adam and Eve did when they fell into sin? They didn't just cover themselves. I mean, they sewed and made a quick covering for themselves. That's how ashamed they were when they were in the presence of God. Just as Peter covers himself with an outer garment before he jumps in the water and swims to Jesus. So whether it's Adam and Eve, or whether it's Peter, or whether it's you, or whether it's me, we too cover ourselves up from God's presence when we are in sin, right? And I've constantly told you over the years that when you are in sin, when you're in adversity, when you're in sorrows, when you're in griefs, when you're in depression, your tendency is to escape the people of God, to stop coming to church. And it's always my encouragement, and I say I say this to many of you when you're struggling, don't worry about doing things for the church. church God's going to take care of this church. But you still need to be here. Your tendency will be to shrink back, to cover yourself up. God just wants you to be present. And God will move first to initiate this with you. All right, so in verse 8, John tells us what the other disciples do. It's just comical. It adds to the drama of what's going on with Jesus and Peter right now. Because Peter just can't think straight because Jesus is here. John says, the other disciples came in the little boat. They were not far from the land, about 100 yards away dragging the net full of fish. So 100 yards is the size of a what in American culture? What's our equivalent? It's a good season. Football season is getting started, right? right? It's the size of a football field. They bring the boat. Yeah, that's how much like Peter swam with that outer garment on. And we find Jesus right here has already provided a fire and a meal for the disciples. And we get it in verse 9. Let's take a look. It says, when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish were placed on it and one of my favorites, bread. Jesus made a charcoal fire on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. There are only, this is why it's so important for you to not be a daily verse Bible reader alone because there are only two instances in the Gospel of John where there's a charcoal fire. There's one right here. We just read it. Do you want to know where the other one is? It's in John 18, 18. That charcoal fire is the setting by which Peter denied his relationship to Jesus publicly. Coincidence that the next time Jesus and Peter are together personally, it's around a char- charcoal fire? Nope. Our God is smart. You you, uh, a human writer could not create a greater piece of narrative right here. This is drama. This is irony right here. Peter warmed himself by the same kind of fire as he denied his relationship to Jesus. And right as, now I, I believe our brother Vernon uh, taught us through this section in the Gospel of John, right as Peter denied Jesus for the third time, as Jesus told him he would, and Peter's like, no, I won't, and Peter's like Jesus' is like, yes, you will, after that third time, with this drama unfolding with Jesus, being betrayed, arrested, beaten, mocked. He looks directly at Peter that third time, and there's grief in Peter's heart. That's where the obstacle began. And now Jesus called Peter to be with him around the same kind of fire. So Jesus has fish cooking on the fire. He has prepared bread. And the question we always ask is, where does Jesus get this fish and this bread from, right? And once again, this is why reading the Bible sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter is so essential. Because this should remind you of John chapter 6. That is why the feeding of the 5,000 is so important for today's scripture. The thought process is this. If Jesus can supernaturally provide for over 5,000 people in a crowd with five loaves and two fish, certainly he can provide loaves, and fish for seven people. You get the logic? That's, that's nothing for Jesus. I mean, over 5,000 is nothing for Jesus either. Let's like, take a look at verses 10 and 11. So Jesus speaks, and he tells him, all right, now bring some of the fish, which you have now caught. And Simon Peter went up, drew the net to land, full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. So Jesus tells them, bring some of the fish that you have caught. Now think about this for a moment. They were out all night and caught nothing. Peter, professional fisherman. James and John, professional fishermen. They catch nothing. And at the word of Jesus, 153. The question I want you to consider is this. In the final analysis, in the ultimate sense, did they provide the fish for themselves? Y'all are so quick to say no, but we've got to apply this to our own lives as well. Because there's many people in this room that think that the money they earn, the toys they have, the resources they have, the gifts they have, the abilities they have are their own. To be used how they want, when they want, and then God gets the leftovers. right? You were so quick to say, it was Jesus. But then shows the hypocrisy in your own heart. You don't live your own life the same way. You don't. God gets the leftover money. He gets the leftover abilities, he gets a leftover time, and you make excuses for why I'm hurting, I'm grieving, I'm sad. We all are, we're all broken, we're all flawed. Paul called himself the chief of sinners, right? They didn't provide fish for themselves in the ultimate sense. They have fish because Jesus provided it. They fished all night and caught nothing. And at Jesus' word, like a snap of a finger, they catch 153 fish. Because all 153 fish are given by the providence of God. And whatever the providence of God of your life, if you have a wife or a husband or you're widowed or single, if God has allowed you to have children or have allowed barrenness to remain in your life, if you have the best of jobs or the worst of jobs, if you're stressed right now because you have so much to do or you're just itching for something to do, all things are given by God's providence. The Reformers called it uh, like the hidden smile of God behind all of our brokenness. There's a joy behind it all. We just don't see it because we're we're so self-absorbed. And as Lewis says, we are far too easily pleased. We're not going to that seashore. We're on the seashore of Galilee. Likewise, all that you have comes from the providence of God. God is the one who withheld fish from Peter the whole night. And it's the same God that one word allowed Peter to draw a net of 153 fish. It's the same God. And we know this from Job, right? Whether it's the suffering or the joy, whether Job has everything in the world or has boils that he's trying to cut off of his skin, all of that is given by God. Look at verses 12 and 13. So Jesus presses further again, and he says, Come and have breakfast. And none of the disciples venture to question him, Who are you, knowing it was the Lord? And Jesus came, he took the bread, and gave it to them, and the fish likewise. What does that sound like to you as a reader? It sounds like Last Supper. You think the, the b- b- apostles connected it to the Last Supper as well? You know they did. You instantly, I saw your eyes go bloop. Like, what? It's the same terminology. Just as Jesus fed the crowds with bread and fish, Jesus now feeds the disciples with bread and fish. As they ate, the disciples looked at each other. Can you imagine the nonverbals going on in this situation? Right? None of them dared to ask who this was. Not even Thomas. So Jesus passes the bread and the fish to them. And how this must have reminded the disciples... Of the final Passover meal they shared with Jesus before his betrayal and arrest and crucifixion, how he breaks bread and passes it to them. All right, finally, verse 14, our final verse. John tells us this is the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. John tells us this is now the third time he appeared to disciples after the resurrection. And though this is not the subject of today's sermon, you got to think about this. Jesus just shows up and he's gone. Jesus can build a fire. Jesus can prepare fish. He can hold bread to bring it there. What does it say about the post-resurrected Jesus and his body, right? And what does then this imply about one day the Christian's resurrected body? Not some spiritual existence, becoming angels and singing with him. Real physical existence for eternity. That's the subject of another time. John writes this, though, to confirm the resurrection of Jesus. They saw Jesus twice in Jerusalem. They see Jesus again in Galilee after he tells them, go back up to Galilee, wait for me. So we see Jesus move to be present with Peter despite his sin. We see Jesus move to put Peter in a position to experience reconciliation. Why does he do this? Because Jesus is after Peter. He is after reconciliation. And we'll get into that more next Sunday. And for now, we pivot so we can see what Jesus is getting at in Peter so that we can figure out what Jesus is trying to get at in us today. All right? Despite the distractions and the rain and boom, what was that? Who knows? Was it anything? I have no idea. Okay, no idea. All right? Despite all distractions this morning, as we're getting ready to address the motivation of your hearts, let's see if we can do it. Let's pivot. The call today is for you to serve Jesus because you're in a position to truly savor him as your deepest satisfaction. So for right now, I do want you, God willing, to consider why you're truly here. Why are you here? Why do you put yourself in a position to be around Jesus, to be around his word, and to be around his people? Because you are now in the cultural minority, Christianity isn't a majority opinion in this culture. We are in a minority. We are a minority group that's becoming more and more of a minority group with every passing year. So it's not convenient. It's not socially advantageous for you to be here right now. And even more, it's more advantageous for you to be in a more glitzy church than the one that you're in right now. And they're all around. So why are you here? I can think of several. You're here because God is beginning to put you in a position to think differently about Jesus. That's why you're here. God is beginning to put you in a position to see him differently, to hear him differently, to feel differently about him before before and the way that you used to. You're beginning to see Jesus for who he says he is, Savior and God, just like Peter. You may be here because you feel like that's what's expected of you. You feel as if there is some relationship present in your life that expects you to be here. You don't want to disappoint them, so you're here. You may be here because it's your habit. You have been coming to church for so long. It's just ingrained in you. What do Americans in the South do? We go to church, right? You may be here because you're afraid of what people may think if you weren't here today. You may be here because the external trappings of religion and doing things that are religious make you feel good about yourself. (laughs) I want a church today, right? So, Heritage, what is your motive for showing up? What is your motive for serving? Let's think about what Jesus is doing in Peter, and let's think about what Jesus is saying. I think we are all in good company to acknowledge In the final analysis, Peter truly saw and savored Jesus as Savior and God. He wasn't being hypocritical. God really did a work in Peter. Peter said, Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. And Jesus told Peter, Peter, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. My Father did. Human beings don't think of this stuff. My Father shows them. No one wants to see me as Savior and God. Despite this, Peter truly denied his relationship to Jesus publicly, not once, but thrice. So when John tells Peter that the person on the shore is Jesus, Peter moves to action. And remember, before Peter moves to action, he covers himself up. Because he would rather come to Jesus soaked, right, and heavy laden with this outer garment than for Jesus to see him stripped naked. That's why. What this means is that Peter is struggling with shame. And let's put ourselves in good company. We're not going to single out Peter as the only one who's ever struggled with shame, right? We all struggle with shame in one form or another. Peter sat around a charcoal fire and denied his relationship to Jesus. And now Peter is sitting around the same kind of fire... To reconcile with Jesus. This means that when God works reconciliation, he is going to put you in a similar situation by which you fell before. Think about this in the relationships of those that you're, you're hurting and still grieving after. This is what our God does. Whatever their struggle is, he's going to put them in a position to make a new action. And that's going to prove whether he did something real in them or not. They failed the test, right? Or they passed the test. Let us turn to John 6, of which we've been recalling now for a while. And let's see how Jesus spoke about the true motivation of a person really quick. John 6, verse 26. This says right after he fed the over 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. This is what he says to the crowd. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Jesus is calling out the motives of the crowd. Wonder why Jesus does this? He's setting a pattern for what preachers and teachers are supposed to do. That's what he's doing. Preaching is meant to call out. And this challenges the methods by which American churches in the West have convinced themselves they must do to be able to win others. Right? Because it's not Peter who draws fish and catches fish, it's the Lord with this word. Their motivation for being around Jesus wasn't Jesus. Their motivation was to get their bellies filled with more bread. I'm not saying we don't come to gather at 630 this Wednesday to not get our bellies filled. We're going to get our bellies filled, right? Praise God for that. People come to church with all kinds of motivations. And preaching is designed by Jesus himself to call out our motivations for being here. But I want you to see how Jesus presses in in the next verse and how he speaks to the motivation of your heart, your disposition and why you do what you do. Jesus says, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life. Now let me tell you what Jesus is not doing here. Jesus is not telling you to quit your job. He's not. I got two of them. It's hard right now. He's not telling me tomorrow to go resign from here or from Hillsborough County. That's not the intended message here, all right? Jesus is also not telling you that you should not work. We have to remember that God gave Adam a job before he fell. Work is not evil, right? Human nature is what makes evil of work. Jesus is speaking here to the heart. The heart is the ultimate motivation for why you do what you do why you talk the way you do, why you dress the way you do, why you watch the things that you watch, why you have the certain habits and attitudes and hobbies that you do. He's speaking to the ultimate motivation of a person. These people that Jesus is speaking harshly to were among the over 5,000 who had their bellies filled by five loaves and two fish. They experienced a supernatural work of Jesus. But you know what? After you eat, what happens again? At some point later, you get hungry, right? It doesn't matter how much of Jesus' bread and fish you ate, you're going to be physically hungry again. So they think back to Jesus' bread. You know what they want to do? They want to reinvent the high, right? I'm hungry. Man, that bread was good yesterday. How did he do that? Let's go find him. And they go all around the Sea of Galilee looking for Jesus, They don't know that Jesus walked on water in John 6, and he's on the other side, so it takes them a while to find Jesus, but they do, and this is the rest of it. If you have ever struggled with addiction, you know what's going on here. You want to duplicate the high that you first experienced. You want to duplicate the experience you just had. And they walk all over the Sea of Galilee, jonesing for the same experience to have it all over again. But those of you who have ever gotten through addiction, you know you can never replace that high because it's the trappings of sin in this life. You'll never feel that good again. So they don't really want Jesus. They want the experience that he provided. Jesus is straightforward with this kind of person. Jesus tells them, your ultimate motivation shouldn't be for things that perish. It shouldn't be to work for food that's just going to mold and stale up. The ultimate goal in life isn't to get your bellies filled. It isn't to have a certain high or to have a certain set of temporary experiences. That's the life of an addict. But here's the thing. This type of experience can even happen in church. It can. You can even make church your high. Why do you think America across the country, and we talked about this as a church on Wednesday nights, why do you think their advertisements are what they are? because they're trying to tap into this dopamine to make you feel good, so you come back, right? And then we talk about a heritage. Why is that I often don't really feel good initially here, right? Jesus provides a better way and a motivation. This is what Jesus says. Instead of making temporary highs, temporary experiences, temporary things, your ultimate motivation your ultimate work should be to work for food that endures, right? That's what Jesus says. So here's the good news heritage: there are enduring highs out there, there are enduring experiences out there, there are enduring things out there. But Jesus says, what you're fixated right now, right now, is not it because you're not fixated on me. Jesus says, make this your ultimate motivation. Where we diverge from the world is that we believe that Jesus and his word and what he says tells us what that ultimate experience is, what that ultimate high is. Jesus says, live, move, and breathe for the things that endure. So once again, Heritage, what's your motivation for your presence today? What is the motivation for your actions today? Jesus says, don't seek the things that I can do for you. Just seek me first. Don't seek me for the bread. Just seek me. So what's your ultimate motivation? Now, In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said in chapter 6 of Matthew, not to make food or drink or clothing or shelter your ultimate aim. You know what the good news is that? It can be a secondary aim, right? But not the ultimate aim in life. He tells us one thing to seek first. If you make temporary things your ultimate motivation, you will be anxious. So you have to question your heart. Am I anxious today? And could it be perhaps that I'm seeking as the ultimate thing in my life something that isn't ultimate? Why would you think something that isn't ultimate can satisfy your ultimate thirst, right? Your call is to simply experience Jesus for who he is and enjoy him. So Jesus says, don't seek me just to fulfill your daily needs. Seek me for me. Seek me first, and then just watch how I fill nets with 153 fish. So why did Jesus feed the masses with five loaves and two fish? And why did Jesus pass out bread and wine at the Last Supper? I think it's because of John 6, 35. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. Now, once again, Jesus is not claiming to be a bread maker. Jesus is not a baker. He's not a fisherman. But as bread satisfies the belly, and oh, we do know how bread satisfies the belly, right? There is nothing like a freshly baked loaf of bread and just a little slather of honey and butter on it, right? Mm. So good. As bread satisfies the belly, even more, infinitely more, Jesus satisfies the soul. And Jesus will use bread and wine, bread and fish, to point you to this. He'll use it. The disciples fished all night, caught nothing. Jesus provided the fish, both in the nets, And on the fire. And Jesus is still the same God who says, come to me. I know your sin. I know there's an obstacle between us. I still say, come to me. Right? He invites them to breakfast. Come and have breakfast. Jesus gives a promise to those who come. If you come to Jesus to experience and enjoy who he is, this is the promise. Your soul will no longer hunger and thirst for the wrong things. Your flesh is going to, but that's a Sunday or a Wednesday night to come. We call it the Christians' waging war of sin. The soul wants something, the flesh wants something else, and they fight for the rest of your time here on earth. That's something else. But the promise is you come to Jesus, and your soul will never hunger and thirst again, though your flesh will. If you remember last week as we revisited, Jesus spoke similarly to the Samaritan woman, right? He said, I'm living water. Now he says, I'm bread of life. This means that Jesus is bread of life and living water for his people. He satisfies their soul so that their soul deep down no longer aches for temporary things. So don't come to church because you have to. Come to church because you get to. God forbid we come to a place in American history where we are not allowed to publicly gather. Come to church because Jesus gladly took the cross for you. He experienced your sins and your sorrows so you won't experience what the enemy would want to do through them. And so you wouldn't experience the wrath of his father fully and completely. Jesus took it on instead. And don't come to church because you're looking for church to manufacture some sort of feelings for you. Come to church as an overflow of what has taken place in your life throughout the week. And come as you are. Whether it's a mountaintop or whether it's a valley, don't stop coming. We come in the highs. We tend to come, not come when it's the lows. Jesus says come in the highs and the lows. Don't serve church because it's what you're supposed to do. Serve the church because it was Jesus' singular aim in this life. Not to be rich, not to get married, not to have kids, not to build an enterprise for himself. Jesus' singular aim was to redeem the church. And you're now a part of the church. And you get to play a pinkies role or an earlobe role in that process. Jesus' desire is for you to come to Him and experience Him and enjoy Him as your bread of life and as your living water. Jesus' desire is for you to serve Him and to serve His body. Actually, to serve the body, the church, as a representation of how you want to serve Him. Because we are the body of Christ. So it never makes sense to me why people say, I love Jesus. There's no commitment to church. We are His body on this earth. So where are you? Jesus' desire is for you to serve him out of the satisfaction you have found in him. You were created with a hunger and a thirst in your soul that only Jesus can fill. And you can spend the rest of your life turning to many things, new cars, new jobs, more money, more hobbies, more stuff, and build and build and build and build. But Jesus spoke to this already, right? One day, Whether you build your house on rock or whether you build your house on sand, what's going to happen? (laughs) The rains are going to come. The floods are going to come. The winds are going to howl against both sets of houses. The one who lives for Jesus and the one who doesn't. The one who believes that Jesus is bread of life and the one who doesn't. We're both going to experience horrendous, torrential rains, floods, and winds. But only one house will stand. And it's the house of those who heard his word and did what he said. And you are hearing God's word right now, but the ultimate question is, are you going to do it? Are you going to be able to be courageous enough to get past your own flesh to do what the Lord Jesus wants you to do, which is just have the best experience imaginable, not in what's out there, but what is in him. So the question is, what if today you are courageous enough to admit that you're here for the wrong reasons? I pray that you are. That someone in here is courageous enough to say, I am here, I am doing religion for the wrong reason. Well, first you need to acknowledge it. Acknowledge that you're acting out of the wrong motivation. You know what? It takes courage, real lion-hearted courage to say you're doing things for the wrong reasons. Second, you need to repent. We're going to talk about repentance on a Wednesday night in two weeks. We're going to get there. Right now in American culture, that word repent is used in jokes, right? Someone messes up and you think you're going to be funny. Oh, you need to repent, right? It's a joke in American culture. But it simply means you're going in a direction, and the destination of that that direction is not going to turn out well for you, and you have the strength to stop. That's the acknowledge, Stop. The direction I'm going in is not going to end well. I've got to stop. Repentance is turning around. But it starts with stopping. Before you can go in a new direction, you need to be strong enough to acknowledge that the direction you've been going in with your life, in church, out of church, saying you're a Christian, where are you, right? Say you're a Christian, but you turn to other things for the satisfaction of the soul. Eventually, you've got to stop and call out what it is for yourself and for your life, truly. God gives you the strength to do this. It takes all of God working in you, and a sign that God is truly working in you, to admit you've been around Jesus, and you've been around his people for the wrong reasons. And then, thirdly, your perspective on life needs to be adjusted. Now, here's the thing. We have... Two more sermons until you're no longer going to hear on Sunday mornings, pivot, all right? And I pray that from December 2020 until now, you have finally understood that you're meant to read the Bible with pivoting in mind. I'm not going to say in our next series, it's time to pivot. I hope it's ingrained in you right now. You read the Bible, you ask God what it means, and you ask God, how shall I pivot today? So we're not going to say pivot next. It's going to be something else. Your perspective on life needs to be adjusted. Because most likely, you have spent 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 plus years turning to inferior things to satisfy your ultimate soul's thirst because of the influence of the people you've put around you. Paul says it this way. Do not be conceived, uh, deceived, Corinthian Christians. He says, bad company corrupts good morals. Solomon says it simply this way. Iron sharpens iron. What's the message? You are the product of your influences. Meaning, you actually don't watch what you watch, say what you say, dress the way you dress, do what you do because you came with it yourself. It's because you've allowed some other outside voice influence you. That habit in of itself isn't sinful. God created you that way because you become What you behold, you live out what you truly love. God made you in the image of God. It's just that you're absorbing and reflecting the wrong image in your life. That's what it is. When you see Jesus for who he is and what he has done, and when you truly enjoy it, a change begins to take place. You look differently at the things that you used to turn to for your entertainment choices. For fun for satisfaction, they begin to look so small and so cheap. You ever look back, like, I had this fixation as a kid with this, like, little Batman toy, and I think once I left it at the zoo in New Orleans. Do you remember that, Dan? I look back, like, why is it so fixated, this little Batman toy, and I was so upset as a, as a kid leaving it out of Zoo, right? Because I've grown up, that's why. That fixation, that little toy, was immature of me, but now I'm a man, right? And the same application goes for you as a Christian. When you truly see and savor Jesus for who he is, you look at that drive-through burger differently. Right? The gospel gives you the perspective you need to properly see the things in life for what they are: they are temporary. So Christians, therefore, don't put their ultimate hope in temporary things. Christians don't turn to temporary things for ultimate satisfaction. But Christians also get married. They have hobbies. They have fun. We just don't turn to those things to do what's ultimate for us. They're secondary. We put our ultimate hope in eternal things. And there is one eternal thing driving all of this, and that is God himself. When this happens, God will give you a new perspective on his son and on his people. So, heritage, please do not come because of compulsion or habit or fear or to make yourself feel better that you did the God thing today. Check. Come and serve as a response to all that God has done for you in Jesus. So, like Peter, do you need to drop your net, yeah, and put your outer garment on And swim with that weight on you to Jesus just so you can reconcile. Heritage, you must ask this today Do you need to reconcile? Do you need to come and have some breakfast with Jesus? My mother in law, I've now learned, says, You're gonna come and have tea on the porch, right? If so, come to Him. That's what worship is worship is a coming to him congregationally come to him lay out your motive he already knows it tell god change my perspective change my perspective on what is really ultimate in this life change my perspective on jesus change my motivation change my view of church change my way and view of serving and the good news is is that he will